It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. This is the hour of Doom and Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a garrison of goodness in a grievous world, with your hosts, Joe Alton, MD. And Amy Alton, ARNP. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And I am a geriatric, old as the pyramids, medical doctor, just here trying to save a life. Before he goes to his reward. <laughs> That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, we are, together, the founders of doomandbloom.net, your source for both medical education and an entire line of the best health savings account eligible, by the way, medical kits on the interweb. Now, if you've just returned from a safari in Botswana, you may have noticed that we've changed our format. You're going to hear more frequent, shorter shows to go straight to the information that you're looking for without a whole lot of housekeeping up front. Now, some of the stuff you're going to hear on the show, be forewarned, is outside the conventional medical wisdom. We'd like to keep our active medical licenses, though, so listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. You shouldn't listen to anything we say. Or should you? (laughs) Uh Should you, should you, should you? (laughs) That's right. You know, the world is not getting any safer these days. And, well, the news headlines, they bear that out. And so, what that means is that more than ever, you should be prepared for disasters, medically prepared, whether they be natural disasters or man-made. The family medic has to assess their level of preparedness well before a disaster occurs. And you know what? Now is as good a time as any. Now, I refer to this assessment to see how medically prepared you are as a status assessment. What's your status? Mm -hmm. When performing an assessment like this, you got to ask a number of questions and you got to answer them in such a fashion that clarify not only your job description, but your level of readiness. So here's some of the questions that I would ask. Okay. What are my responsibilities? I mean, what's the job description for the medic in survival settings? Well, it goes without saying that as a group medic, you're going to be responsible for the medical well-being of your survival community. But what does that mean? I think that it's clear that you're the chief medical officer, but in addition, you're going to have a number of other duties, all of which may mean the difference between life and death, success or failure in times of trouble. You will also be not only chief medical officer, but chief sanitation officer. Bet you haven't thought of that. It's going to be your duty to make sure that sanitary conditions at your camp or retreat don't cause the spread of disease among your people. This is going to be a major issue in an austere setting. It's going to cause the most medical problems, I think, in any survival group, especially in the early going. Now, some of your responsibilities are going to relate to things like latrine placement, construction of said latrine, and these things have to be put, let's say, 200 feet or so away from your nearest water source. That's important also. Well, not everybody knows that either. That's true. And that's the thing. You have got to have plans and figure things out before you're in the situation that you need that knowledge. It's it's 
like with anything with preparedness. If you have a ham radio and you have no idea how to operate it, that's not going to help you in an emergency. Same thing with solar panels and marine batteries. I've made some mistakes with cheap inverters that I bought because I saw the expensive ones and I thought, well, this must be the same thing. Well, it wasn't. The wires were much thinner and I almost started a fire in our house <laughs> with smoke coming out of the inverter. Yes, very eventful day. Yes. <laughs> yes. So planning and figuring out proper ways to do things if you have to, I mean, it's education. That's the whole point. You have to be educated in the duty that you're going to perform in a situation. Hopefully, people don't have to do this. Hopefully, this is just something you learn. It's interesting to learn first aid, but you don't actually have to uh, have a call to action. That's what I hope for people. Yeah, absolutely true. And the same thing, you want to be able to know how to build a latrine that would be sanitary and could handle a group of people proper distance how to do it you don't necessarily want to look forward to (laughs) putting one of those together No, you don't look forward to that trip (laughs) now another issue would be relating to the supervision of appropriate filtration and disinfection of water Mm -hmm. that is super super important you should know several ways to make water drinkable and have the materials let's say to make fire to boil water mm-hmm. you want to have bleach and or iodine in your supplies and you want to have a decent filter like the life straw mini sawyer or if you're bugging in maybe a berkey filter i know you have life straws right. and mini sawyers and in bur- your i store. was going to mention berkey if you didn't bring that up there absolutely by the way i just want people to know that household bleach loses its potency after well several months to a year perhaps so you might consider some granular pool shock something that's uh Essentially, calcium hypochlorite bleaches sodium hypochlorite. To convert pool shock to a chlorine solution that you can use to disinfect water, you're going to disinfect, you're going to disinfect, you're going to dissolve one heaping teaspoon of granular calcium hypochlorite, mm-hmm. about one quarter of an ounce, in two gallons of water, 7.5 liters if you're using that. That makes a chlorine solution of calcium hypochlorite, not exactly bleach, which is sodium hypochlorite, as I said. But close enough. Now, to disinfect water using your newly made bleach, you would add one pint of the chlorine solution that you just made to about 12.5 gallons of water that needs to be disinfected. Now, essentially, that comes out to about one part bleach to 100 parts water. Now, to to remove the chlorine odor, what you're going to want to do is pour it back and forth from one clean container to another. And that so actually helps remove that. Yeah, so like an aeration situation. There you go, right. Situation. That's exactly what you're Even doing. if you had it in a bottle and you like shook it up, mm-hmm. I think to get air bubbles in there, I think helps with the taste. Yes, yes. And if you use UV sterilization, that would be very helpful. Now, you have to wait about 30 minutes or 60 minutes before you drink this water that's <laughs> yes. newly disinfected, you want to let newly bleached <laughs> let the chlorine work its magic. There you go. Now I'm not just making this stuff up. You can find these directions at water.epa.gov. It's official. Now clean water, that's so important to assure the proper preparation of food. That's important too. You have to enforce the thorough cleaning of work surfaces, not just in the hospital tent or your sick room but wherever your people are making meals. And also important, by the way, is going to be the maintenance of good personal and group hygiene. You want to eliminate vermin from shelters. That That's going to help decrease the spread of disease. Vermin. Oh, and my gosh. Vermin, well, I have lots of articles and everything yes. from rodents, vermin, to true. all the way down to spiders. 
you know, brown yes, recluse spiders and stuff like that. So there's all sorts of critters that can cause injuries and illness. And you can find a lot of information about how to deal with them at doomandbloom.com. Right. Prevention's the key. That's right. So careful attention to these details on your part is going to be an essential part of a program that's going to keep your family or community healthy. Now, what are your other duties? In addition to chief medical, you're going to be, and chief sanitation officer, you're going to be chief dental officer. Medical personnel in wartime or in remote locations often report that patients arriving at sick call complain of dental problems as often as they complain of medical problems. Anybody who's had a bad toothache knows that it affects your concentration and certainly your work efficiency, and that can lead to mistakes or lack of progress in achieving survival goals. I'll tell you, that is a, a big issue. If you've ever had to go to work with a toothache, I have, uh, it, you, you just can't think of hardly anything else other than wanting to get that tooth out. Now, you will want to know how to deal with toothaches. You're going to want to know how to deal with broken teeth or teeth that are knocked out. You want to deal with, know how to deal with lost fillings, loose crowns. If you're going to be an effective medic in a long-term survival setting, you have to have a plan of action for all of these things. So you want to accumulate appropriate dental supplies that can handle emergencies that you're likely to encounter. You can check out an example of a good survival dental kit at store.doomandboom.net. We have a terrific kit that was put together for us by a couple of dentists. And indeed, these are, I think, very, very useful. If you're not dentally prepared, you are not medically prepared. That is, if your concern is a long-term event, a few days without power due to a storm, well, maybe you won't need dental supplies for that. But longer term, this stuff becomes pretty darn important. Other duties, you're going to be chief counselor. It goes without saying that any societal collapse could wreak havoc with people's mindsets. You'll have to know how to deal with depression, anxiety, things like that, as well as cuts and broken bones. In other words, you are the chaplain. You're not going to have gunfights at the OK Corral every day, I hope, but you will be dealing with depressed and anxious people. A lot, as a matter of fact. Therefore, you've got to sharpen your communication skills as well as your medical skills. A good healthcare provider understands the importance of confidentiality, by the way, in all of their patient contacts. You have to have the trust of the members of your group. That will greatly increase your effectiveness in times of trouble. You're also the medical quartermaster. You've done your job. You've accumulated all this dental and medical stuff. But who decides when you break them out and use them? You do. If you let some committee or tribal council decide these things, well, you know what a camel is. It's a horse put together by a committee. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, I remember yeah. that a long, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, one decision, for example, will be when will you use your limited supply of antibiotics? We've written a book all about the importance of them. And indeed, they will save lives if you have a supply of them. But how much are you actually going to be able to have in a long-term event? These items aren't going to be produced anymore because of the complexity of their, I guess, manufacture. So you have to monitor your supply stock and the usage of it. If you do, it'll allow you to control the ability to handle medical emergencies. One duty you have that's not a lot of fun is that of medical archivist. You're in charge of writing down the medical histories of the people in your group, the people you expect to be caring for. Sounds like a lot of work, and maybe it is, but this record will be useful to remember all the medical conditions that your people have, their allergies or medications they might be taking. 
if your community is large, would be almost impossible to memorize all of this stuff. And it's also helpful in monitoring whether your people with medical conditions are indeed stockpiling their meds. You don't want somebody with high blood pressure showing up at your retreat with their last three pills. Uh-huh. In a month or two, they may end up with a stroke. Right. And then you've got some real problems. Also, your running histories of the treatments that you've performed on each group member over time, they're really important to put into writing because one day you might not be there to render care. Your archives are going to be a valuable resource to the person that's in charge when you're not around. Until that day, however, of course, you want your histories to be confidential. And lastly, you're a medical education resource. You can't be in two places at once and you have to make sure that other people in your group have some basic medical knowledge. It's important that they can take care of injuries or illness while you're away. Some injuries require quick action and the training that you impart can save a life, maybe even yours. These responsibilities are many, but they can also be modified somewhat by the makeup of your group. If you have a pastor or some other clergy in your group, they can take maybe some of the burden of counseling away from you. If you have somebody who's skilled in engineering or water treatment or waste disposal, they might be able to use their knowledge to help maintain sanitary conditions at the retreat or assure healthy filtered water. Be sure to take whatever help that you can get. Another question that I think is very important is what scenario are you preparing for? It's important to accumulate medical supplies and knowledge that will work in any situation, but what are you actually expecting to happen? Your preparations should be modified to fit the particular situation that you believe will cause modern medical care to be unavailable. There are a lot of different scenarios that could leave you without access to medical help, and a lot of them require some specialized planning. Your readiness to deal with the most likely injuries or illness to occur in a particular situation will increase your effectiveness, I think, exponentially. Let's say it's an economic collapse. If you feel that we're on the verge of an economic collapse, you might believe that the reliable transport of food from farms to the public is going to no longer exist. Who's paying the truckers, right? In that case, malnutrition will be rampant among your people. Your responsibility as medic will be to make sure that your group's food storage includes everything required to give good nutrition. Stockpiling vitamin supplements would be a pretty good strategy for this situation. Even if they're not taken daily, they could be helpful in preventing diseases caused by deficiencies. The lack of vitamin C, for example, causes an illness called scurvy. Having sources of vitamin C around, natural or man-made, will prevent that. Eventually, though, medicines and vitamins are going to run out in a long-term disaster, so you have to know what nutrients might be present in local plant life. That's going to be very useful. Here's an example back from history. In the 1500s, the Spanish Exploration Party was dying of scurvy right in the middle of a forest. Native Americans noted their plight, took pity on them, and they just walked to the nearest pine tree, one of which uh, one of the Spaniards was laying underneath, and picked some new green pine needles. They made a tea out of them and nursed the Spaniards back to health. Why? Because the pine needles happened to be rich in vitamin C's, and Native Americans knew that or knew that it helped this particular problem. And it's that kind of knowledge that could wind up being as critical to you as it was for them. How about civil unrest as an issue? Well, let's face it, civil unrest is part and parcel of many natural or man-made disasters, actually part of everyday life, it seems, these days. Right. And you might end up in an area with a nearby hostile group of folk. And in this case, you want to tailor your supplies and training to equip you to deal with possible traumatic injuries. You want to stock up on bandages, antiseptics, other specialized 
equipment such as splints, blood clotting agents, tourniquets, things like that, all of that would be important in this circumstance. Terrorist attacks are another type of, I guess, of civil unrest. They're in the same category. Terror events are part of the new normal that we may have to accept in the uncertain future. Most will be an active shooter or a strategically placed bomb. It's going to be important to carry materials specifically to stop bleeding in mass casualty incidents. Also, pandemics. Pandemics are another possible issue. From the Black Plague all the way to Ebola, many people are concerned about a widespread outbreak of infectious disease, one that can reach epidemic status. When it affects whole communities in multiple regions, it's a pandemic. If you're worried about a super flu descending on your area, you want to store up on masks, gloves, antibiotics, antiviral drugs, figure out a quarantine strategy to keep your family isolated from sick individuals. Most importantly, plan out a survival sick room that'll help the ill recover while limiting exposure of the healthy to the infection. Now there's also some weird things that if you happen to live near the no nearby nuclear plant. Oh yeah. There we have one about what 20 miles or so away from us the turkey Exactly, point. exactly. Yeah, right, nuclear power plant. Well, thankfully it's 20 and not 2. Yes. <laughs> I will say I'm thankful for that one situation. Yes. Although they are generally safe, right? Right. You know, good source of energy. But a large city could be a target for a nuclear attack. Uh, you live near an army base perhaps. Also uh Nuclear plant, like we mentioned, let's say you're concerned about a terrorist group setting off a dirty bomb, things like that. Well, in that scenario, you're going to need to know how to protect your group from radiation Mm -hmm. and how to build an effective shelter. We have a, I think, pretty good article on that, including the having thicknesses of various material building materials on our website. Definitely check that out. You're going to want medications like ThyroSafe. Which, by the way, we just got a fresh case delivered to the front door. Oh, that's, yeah. And by the way, anyone who has that, it never expires. Ignore the expiration dates, even though they're many, many, many years. I think they actually stamp an expiration date from eight, eight years from now. But even after eight years, that is a stable medication. Right. It's potassium iodide. Not going to degrade. Potassium iodide that is inorganic is not an organic compound, so it's less likely to degrade. Exactly. And so that will counteract some of the long-term effects of radiation on, say, the thyroid gland and decrease the levels of cancer over time. One hint, give it to the kids first. They're most likely to have problems later down the road. Exactly. So it's clear that your supplies and training should be modified somewhat depending on the course of events. you got to determine what specific scenarios you think are going to be likely to involve you and plan accordingly. Now, how many people are you going to be responsible for? That, I think, is something very important. Your store of medical supplies should cover the number of people that you're going to be caring for. Now, if you stockpiled, let's say, five treatment courses of antibiotics, that's pretty good. It might be enough for a couple or a sole individual for a good long while, but it'll go fast if you're taking care of 20 or 30 people. So if you're taking care of a survival group, you need this stuff in bulk. Remember that most of these people are going to be out performing tasks that they're not used to doing. They're going to be making campfires, chopping wood, lifting heavy loads, and you're going to see a lot of injuries, sprains and strains, lacerations, burns, fractures, 
Uh, gosh, you're going to need enough supplies to deal with all these things for a bunch of different people. I was just going to say, yeah, that will definitely happen to me in about the first five minutes. <laughs> I'm just not <laughs> yeah. used to it. Me too. You know, I mean, chopping I, firewood. Oh boy, right. and that and, sounds like a scary finger situation right, for me. Sure. <laughs> Kids and campfires, you know, <clears> that they they're fascinated by fire, so you know they can get burned. There are lots of different things, and, and a lot of these medical kits that you see out there say, "Well, this is a kit for twenty-five people, or this is a kit for fifty oh, people." Oh yeah, it's a bunch. Ha! It's a bunch of hooey. Anytime that they say that, they're taking into account that you have that you need twenty-five band aids on twenty-five little cuts, or or twenty-five antiseptics on twenty-five scraped knees. It's ridiculous. Or like are they or they might not even give you that many band aids. They might assume that only one person is going to get sick because usually they have like. One tiny ace bandage. Right. It's or one breakable ice pack. I mean, right. forget it. One How significant ma- bleed. That's one it. major orthopedic gone. injury. Right. And all of those supplies in those 25 people or 50 it's people ridiculous. or 100 people. Or 100 kits, people. Those things. 100 people gone. first aid kit with one ace bandage. It's pretty. That just drives me nuts. Can you tell that's like a pet peeve? I think they have a, a lot of nerve, <laughs> honestly, to cons- consider. Putting on the market That marketing. It's just a marketing ploy. But nobody has a crystal ball. If you're hiking in the hills and you have 50 people, 10 people might end up with sprained ankles. You got a kit for 50 people. I highly doubt it's got 10 ace bandages in it. There's just no way. They might maybe have one. So it's just insane. It is. You can't predict the future. Nobody can. So the question is, can you ever have enough medical supplies? They'll get up. They'll get used up. A lot faster than you think. Another right. consideration is you that you almost certainly are going to end up dealing with more survivors than you expected. The biggest mistake that the survival medic was going to make is the underestimation of the number of people that are going to appear on their doorstep. Well, you got to make allowances for more people than you currently think that you would. I guarantee you that you're not going to turn away every single person that needs your help. Let's say, however that you had more medical supplies than you needed. That's unusual, very unlikely scenario, but any excess items will be highly sought after for barter purposes. You might spend your money on buying physical silver and gold, but you're not going to be able to set a broken bone with it or wrap a sprained ankle with precious metals. Food, medical items, that's going to be the way to go. It's going to be so much more valuable in hard times. I agree. So the, health, health is everything. You are absolutely right. So the bottom line is very simple. Always have more medical items on hand than you think are sufficient for the number of people in your group. You're going to be taking care of more people and any extra could be used, as I mentioned, for barter in some situations or better yet in helping others. If you show your willingness to use your supplies and knowledge to give medical aid to others, the whole community is going to realize your importance and expend their resources to protect you. That's all for this week. That's all, Uh, folks. (laughs) (laughs) We thank you for listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. I'm Joel. That's Amy. We'll be back next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. 
contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.